Morning, everybody. For can you turn me down a little bit, Kyle? Thanks. Um, is there any new? There's nobody. Isn't anybody new here? Okay, then I don't have to introduce myself. My name's Justin. Hello, everybody. So, growing up, what were some of your favorite uh, traditional children's games? Like not board games, not like not like baseball or group games, but like children's games. Red Rover. Red Rover. Wait, what? what? Kick the can. Hide and seek. Red Rover was always a great way to get back at somebody you didn't like. <laughs> Go ahead, try to break through this. So kick the can, Red Rover. What else? Hide and seek. Red light, green light. What did you say, shopping for? Oh my gosh, Jeff. <laughs> going to destroy you. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Jeff, Jeff and I have this little thing that we go back and forth on. Um, so children's games are great forms of play. And um, as far as children's games go regarding play, like it's beneficial for everybody, not just kids, to participate in some just fun stuff. Um, however, when we take certain principles of children's games and, to, and apply them to our interaction with one another and to our relationships with God, um, things can get a little bit hairy, so to speak. You know, we can play freeze tag with one another in relationships where we are kind of manipulating somebody and be like, well, I'll unfreeze you, and you can play again if you do this for me. Or we kind of be like, no, I don't want to unfreeze you because I don't like you. And so we can play these games of manipulation and freeze tag. Um, There's also, I learned the game upstairs, Ghost in the Graveyard, does anybody play that? Yeah, I didn't know that until I came here. And if I were to be honest, is Naomi here? Okay, good. Um, even though Naomi's mom and grandma are here. If I were to be honest with myself, one of the games that I play with Naomi in the middle of the night with twins is Ghost in the Graveyard, where the baby's waking up, and, I, and I'm awake and I hear the babies, and I just lay as still as I can and pretend that I'm still sleeping. <laughs> and then Naomi is like, did you hear them last night? I'm like, no. I was dead sleeping. Um which isn't very honoring to her. I get that. That's kind of part of today. Um, so there's these games that we can play with one another out of these principles. The, the, the game, the main game that I believe that we still play um, is, is the game of uh, hide-and-seek, is the game of hide-and-seek, that we as humanity and as people um, continue to play this game in our lives over and over again. Um, there was an author, Brian White, who said that we never really actually grow up all we learn to do is act in public responsibly. So like these games that we play, we continue these games and we bring them into our adult world, but we kind of mask them so you don't necessarily know I'm playing this game with you, even though you can kind of feel it. And so um, the whole point of that is that we continue to play these games. And again, when the game is for fun and for play, it's great. But then when we take those principles, those things that we've learned, and apply them to serious situations, it's not so great. So um, when you think of hiding, so let's think of hide and hide and seek. When you think of hiding and you think of sin, what attribute or what characteristic or fruit of sin do you think about when you think of hiding? What was that? You're right. Yeah. Shame. Shame. Good, good, good. Now, there's multiple definitions for uh, shame. Um, 
and shame is very nuanced. Let me just read you a couple from different sources. Uh, shame, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the, con- the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Shame is to cover with dishonor or disgrace. Misplaced shame is when you feel those feelings of distress even when you did nothing wrong. So just because you feel shame doesn't actually mean that you did something wrong. Or it can or cannot mean that. Guilt is connected with wrongful action where shame is connected with our identity with that wrongful action. Shame erodes our courage and fuels disengagement. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. It tells us that what we've experienced or done or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Shame is an acid that strips us of dignity and dissolves our hope. It is the traumatic exposure of nakedness. So shame is very nuanced, and while it's never necessarily a good thing, sometimes um, God will, in his love and his redemption, use it. However, there's kind of like, so it's nuanced. We can look at the, the two extremes. So if you think about even in our culture today, if I were to say that you are shameful or shameless, neither one of those things are a virtue, right? If I call Olivia, Olivia, you're so shameless. That's not like, woo! That's not like a good thing I'm saying to her. Or if I'm acting in a shame-filled way, that is also not a fruit of the Spirit. And so we can have this idea of this shame-based living when it comes when there are these commandments and these control mechanisms of man that are put on top of us that are not God's ways, that there are ways for us to control one another. And if we look at the scriptures, you know, the obvious place to go here is with the Pharisees and how Jesus came against the Pharisees over and over again, for they were teaching the traditions of men as the commandments of God. And sometimes we willingly take up these man-made traditions and we nullify the voice of God because it's easier. It's easier to have this checkbox list and if we can get all of those things in order, well, then I'm a good Christian. Then God will love me. And we become these spiritual machines rather than these living, breathing human beings. On the other hand, so that would be like living in a shame-filled way. On the other hand is the shameless living, which the scripture also talks about, especially in the prophets. You know, the people of God are not loving their God. They're um, committing idolatry all over the place. They're not loving one another. And they're acting in shameless ways. And they don't, they don't quite literally give a damn what they're doing. And so they engage in this shameless kind of mode of operation. And even though they're seeing it as a good thing and a sense of freedom, that is not the way God necessarily designed them to be. So to, to take some illustrations, so a uh, shameful way of doing this, and again, I'm going to use my, my own personal life. If I were to go up to my daughter, Lana, who's five years old, and I were to ask her, hey, what did Thomas Adams invent in 1870 that you use every, every day. If you don't know this, Lana, you're stupid. If you don't know this, you know what? You're, in fact, worthless because you should know this thing. Is there anybody here that knows what uh, Thomas Adams did in 1870? Okay. So what I'm doing there is that I'm putting some kind of um, grid over top of her that is saying what uh, qualifies her as a worthy human being, as a worthy child. And if she doesn't live up to this expectation, well, her identity is junk. 
And so that's where, like, shame comes, and I'm oppressing her. Why don't you know this? Should she know that, especially at five years old? Do you know that at whatever age you are? No, the thing it is is, is gum. Thomas Adams in 1870 was doing, he was trying to find a rubber substitute, and so he was look, working with some sap in a tree in South uh, America, and then he, he started to taste it, and he's like, oh, this tastes pretty good. And so it became what would be the basis of gum. So that's shameful, that's putting on shame, that's shame-based living, which we talk about a lot here at Cornerstone, especially Jay and Sherry, and trying to alleviate some of those religious and cultural uh, grids that are put on us that are not of God. And what's so dangerous about them is that there's a slice of truth in them, right? And so you can find this little bit of truth in there, but then it's twisted and manipulated. And you're called to do this and do that when you're not actually called to do this and do that. On the other hand, we have shameless living. So uh, with uh, us today is Munner, who is 91 years old, who is Naomi's grandma. Give her a hand from Texas. (laughs) Munner! So just like you would kind of raise your eyebrow and probably report me if I was acting that way towards uh, Lana in that shameful, shame-filled way, let's say Munner, 91-year-old great-grandma Munner, was at the top of the stairs, and I decided it'd be funny if I pushed her down the stairs. And I laughed about it. I was just like, I was just joking. Would you be okay with that? Right. And yet we see in scripture where people are doing shameless acts like that, not necessarily exactly like that, but illustratively. And they're sociopaths, that we can become sociopaths in that where we don't have this feeling of empathy, where we don't have this feeling of care for people, and we actually find it funny. So neither being filled with shame or shameless is necessarily a good thing. In fact, it's not a good thing. And we see that back and forth in scripture all the time. And so, like I said, it's very nuanced in in the idea of uh, what shame is. So the one slice that I want us just to think about for a moment today is how shame is connected with idolatry. How is shame connected with idolatry? I lifted this from a book, Cry of the Soul, which was released in the uh, late 90s, and it's a uh, book that goes through the human emotions that we experience. And in those human emotions, he goes, what do those human emotions reveal about how we see God or what we believe or don't believe about God? And so shame can be provoked by something other than just our exposed ugliness, whether that ugliness is in truth or a lie. Shame can be rooted in our inherent preference to trust false gods rather than to depend on God. Shame can arise because I am an idolater and I feel foolish when my idol topples. Shame can be an eternal wake-up call that shows us that we are worshiping a God who is not a God. So this idea of sin and of idolatry and shame. So if we think about um, the first place in Scripture where where sin takes place, uh, we think of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, God gives Adam and Eve the garden. Adam and Eve, uh, the end of chapter 2, it says that they are naked and what? unashamed, not ashamed. They are naked and not ashamed. And then there's this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God says, don't eat from that tree. You don't want to eat from that tree. I gave you everything else. You have this tree of life, everything else. Tend it, be with me, be present with me. Serpent comes, tempts Eve. Eve sees that everything's good. Adam's there kind of standing by the side, doing doing something with his shoulders. Eve takes 
and eats of the fruit. She disobeys. She gives the fruit to Adam. Adam disobeys. There's this sin here. But in the midst of this, one could say that there was also this idol of self being constructed. Because, oh yeah, because this will make me better. You know, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'll have all this knowledge. I'll be like God, like the serpent said. And my eyes will be open and all this. And so they eat and their eyes are open. But what ends up happening is that right away, which they actually had a grace because a lot of times we can participate in sin and idolatry and we don't know it for years. Right away, their eyes are open. They're like, what's going on here? Something is going on here. And now they see themselves and they hide. They hide themselves. And the reason that they hide themselves is because for the first time ever, they saw themselves outside of God. And so this thing that they were going to choose over God that was going to cover them and make them better, their idol, ends up immediately failing. And they see each other and they're kind of afraid. They're ashamed of what's going on. And so they hide, not only physically, but then they also hide through um, other means. Blame shifting, where Adam's like, well, this is your fault, God. You gave me the woman, yada, yada, yada. And so Adam is hiding behind um, God in the wrong ways. He's hiding behind blame. Eve says, this was the serpent. This is the serpent's fault. You know? It's the serpent's fault. And then, as they say, the rest is history. The rest is history. So we have this... this um, this kind of pattern, and now these arrows go back and forth because there's no real like flow chart of how sin works, except for sin eventually equals death. That's the only flow chart. But there's this interaction between sin and idolatry, and we set these things up in our lives where we disobey or we turn to another source, but then that idol eventually will always fail us. And at that point, we have this choice of what to do when that happens. Oftentimes, we choose shame and we hide. Shame comes to us and we find uh, a quote-unquote safe place in the midst of shame that we cover ourselves in shame so that way you can't really see what happened, that we don't really have to deal with the things that are going on in our lives or the choices that we've made in regards to sin. So 1997, I probably told the story again. I have a bad memory. Just humor me. Um, usually once a year I shave my face um, for multiple reasons. We don't have to get into the, the spiritual formation of my face um, this morning. But I shaved my face, and this year when uh, I shaved my face, um, I, I remembered, I took off my covering, and one, the girls didn't know who I was for a little bit. Naomi was kind of like, oh, is that what you look like underneath that hair? <laughs> so there's a couple days of getting reacquainted with one another. But I have these two scars on my chin that are right here that you can't see when it's covered with hair. But when I was shaving, I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. So back in 1997, I worked at a concrete plant. Yes, I am that buff <laughs> in Bethel. And um, at that concrete plant, one day I was coming home in the middle of the day. I stayed up too late the night before. I had to go to a dentist appointment. I was working hard. was coming back. was driving kind of lost sight for a minute, and this dog ran out in front of my vehicle. And so I'm like, oh, dog! And so I turned my car wheel, went and hit a um, guardrail on the side. <laughs> Mirror flies across my face, 
glass hits me, I get these scars. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in a car accident. You know, I'm shaking. Um, I don't think I had a cell phone at that time. Yeah, that's how long ago that was. But there was a farm, and so I had to do this walk down the farmer's lane to call my dad, call my mom, be like, hey, I was in a car accident. There was this dog. I had to kind of swerve to miss him. And uh, so we get there. Dad's like, oh, what happened? He's like, dog, yeah, he was like our dog back in the day. He was a German shepherd. And he's like, oh, yeah, we didn't see any kind of dog like that around here. I wonder where it came from. I don't know. Um, so the actuality of that story, though, is that there was no dog, is that I fell asleep at the wheel, and luckily I didn't hit the, 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 the blunt part of the guardrail, you know what I mean, because I might not be here, I don't know. But as soon as that happened, um, I needed to figure out a story so I wouldn't get in trouble. I needed to figure out a story so I wouldn't get in trouble. And so... Here, now, regardless if falling asleep or not knowing my limitations as a sinner or not, we all make mistakes, I get that. At that point, I had this choice to make. Was I going to be vulnerable and say what actually happened, or was I going to hide in shame behind something that didn't exist, behind a lie? And so that, you know, quarter-mile walk, I needed to make that decision. I needed to make the decision about what I was going to do, and I chose to hide behind something. I chose the way of shame in that, in that regard. And so this is, now you might be asking, well, what was my idol there? Well, my idol there was I wanted my parents to think of me as better than maybe I really was. I had idols of, I have this, these dreams of this summer. Now I got a car, first year of having a car. I got this stuff. I need to somehow protect that in order so that I can still have fun. You know, there was uh, this image that I wanted to keep of myself that I was in such a, such a putz that I would fall asleep in the middle of the day. The funny thing about it is that my brother knew right away that I was lying. He looked at me and he was like, oh, was that, was that dog in your dreams? Just like, and it was just like one of those freaky things, you know, like, I don't know if it's because he was good at doing that stuff back in the day, and so he knew. Um, but I didn't tell my dad till 10 years later. So when I was like, Naomi and I were already married, and I, like, I think I mentioned it in passing. Like, it somehow came up, and I was just like, oh yeah, dad. Um, and he was cool with it or whatever, because it was 10 years removed. That didn't, that didn't mean that what I did was right, though. And a lot of times, what we can end up doing is that we can end up hiding in shame, or sinning, or uh, committing this act of idolatry, and then it kind of like dissipates, except the transgression is still there. I lied to my dad. I lied to my mom. I needed to fess up, say, I'm sorry for that, because I was hiding behind all of these things. So here's the thing. One of the things that shame does is that it suffocates sorrow. It suffocates sorrow. So shame has the potential to arrest passion, to close down desire, and turn the heart away from sorrow. Once passion, desire, and sorrow are dormant, the heart freely returns to idols without thought or feeling. It is safer to feel shame, no matter how painful or destructive, than to feel sorrow. This is because shame closes down the heart and refuses to groan. Sorrow increases momentum to seek, to knock, and to ask. So what would have happened back in the day, and we don't know, in Genesis 3, if Adam and Eve were just like, oh my God, we did this, that there was no excuses, right? Because Genesis 3 is the first game of hide and seek. They're hiding. What does God say as they're hiding? 
Where are you? There's both the spiritual and this physical hiding that's there. What would have happened if I just would have fessed up? Would I have been carrying this kind of guilt and this shame with me those 10 years? And again, it wasn't something that was debilitating, but that stuff can add up. That stuff can corrode our hearts and our spirits, no doubt. And so when we come to that place, there's this decision to make that are we going to choose shame? Are we going to hide in shame? Are we going to embrace sorrow? Are we going to embrace godly sorrow? And to take it a step further, I would even say that what happens is that in godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians, godly sorrow leads us to what? Do you remember? To repentance. And when we turn from the way we think things should be and this perfectionism or whatever that we'll never live up to one way or another, or this image, this false image of ourselves, and we turn our eyes towards God and away from those idols, we experience the joy of salvation. And so perhaps, I know it kind of sounds weird, am I not experiencing the joy of salvation because I'm not willing to enter into the sorrow that God calls me to enter into? It's a question for all of us. So God turns misplaced um, joy into sorrow in the scriptures, just as he turns sorrow and mourning into dancing. Again, you can have people, and again, Isaiah would be a picture of this, where Isaiah um, is prophesying against the nation that you are in the streets partying with wine, and wine in the Old Testament is often linked to joy in a good way. But you're partying in the streets, getting drunk off of this wine. And yet you're in my temple worshiping other gods. You're oppressing the poor and the neglected. And so I'm actually going to turn your quote-unquote joy, which is for all the wrong reasons you're rejoicing, and turn that into sorrow. On the other hand of things, we see over and over in Scripture that those that are kind of cast down and they're feeling the weight of um, either truth or lies, that God comes to them. God comes to us and says, you know what? I'm going to turn your mourning into dancing. I'm going to come and you're going to see the joy of my salvation and this mourning and this place of sorrow that you're entering into, I'm going to turn into dancing. So there is this godly sorrow and there's also this worldly sorrow that actually ends in despair, which we'll get to in a minute. But what I want to do here is I want to pause for a second and thinking about the idea of sin and idolatry and of shame. So um, Kyle, can you bring all the lights down to like three I would like everybody to shake off wherever, whatever posture you're in right now, and I want you to get into a posture of contemplation and of prayer, okay, whatever, however you're comfortable in that. So I'd like you to close your eyes, and I would just like you to ask God a single multifaceted question, and then just sit and listen. It's important that we as the church with so much noise around us and so much busyness in our lives, stop and just be quiet and listen. So the question in regards to sin and idolatry and shame and hiding is this. And you ask God, I don't know, I'm not putting anybody or anything on anybody, but there's always this idea that we're, we're constantly hiding in our lives that God wants to set us free from. So where... Why and from what are you hiding right now? Where 
why, and from what are you hiding right now? So go to God in contemplation, and we'll be quiet for two minutes. Shame often wants to tell us that there is no salvation from God, and we just have to keep hiding and clinging on to our idols. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for them in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Amen. Can you bring the lights up, guys? So we're often tempted when sin and idolatry is exposed. Team, you can come back up to hide in shame. And we also don't want to get stuck in the wrong kind of sorrow because just as the scripture says that there is this idea of worldly sorrow. And this is despair. This is sorrow that is without hope. And we don't want to enter into that either. We want to enter into this godly sorrow where we can both feel the weight and know that God will lift our heads, that will come to us and look us in the face because of his goodness, because of the blood of his son. The good news in all of this is that we can try all we want to, you know, not be shameful or to not hide or to not have despair or to um, have hope. And we do need to seek after those things. But the good news in the midst of all this is the fact that though we hide, though we are the hiders, that God is the one who seeks. That God is the one that comes after us and seeks us out in all of these places. And by looking to him and by uh, our minds and hearts taking in the scripture and the spirit, faith rises up in us and vulnerability rises up in us to be able to enter into this godly sorrow in community to know that God is offering forgiveness. That it's not that he's offering pardon in the sense of, oh, that never happened. No, it did happen. But guess what? I'm taking care of it. And so he constantly seeks us. And he is the God that seeks. So continuing in this shepherding uh, idea, one of the things that the shepherd does is what? Seeks and saves the lost. So when uh, Jesus talks in John 10 about being the good shepherd, he's not just randomly making some stuff up and on the fly, he knew his Bible. And so um, I want to read where he got his stuff from. I want to read Ezekiel 34, or at least a part of it. And this has to do with God being a good shepherd. So the people are in exile right now. And the leaders did not take care of them. The priests, the prophets, aside from a few... The elders, they did not take care of the sheep, and worse off, the sheep just went and did what they wanted to do anyway. But the good news is that, again, that God seeks out his people. So I'm going to read. I want you to take this in and to let it wash over you. Again, this wasn't written specifically to us, but it was written for us. So take the principles of the love and the characteristics of God and what he says about our community and himself to heart. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them. 
as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own home. I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There, there she, they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then he turns from what he is doing and he kind of gives a word to the flock in general. He says, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you would muddy the rest of the water for your feet? So he's saying, this is good. I'm going to come and I'm going to shepherd you. But as I'm shepherd you, I'm going to take this staff. I'm going to take this rod. And the people that are in here and that are not treating one another in love and respect, the strong ones that are oppressing the weak, he is going to correct which is good news. Must my sheep eat what you have trotted with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder and thrust it all with the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And there we have that direct correlation with Jesus being the good shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness. And sleep well in the woods. And then further down he says, I am the Lord their God with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God. Thus declares the Lord. And so even though we continue to play this game of hiding in shame, of not embracing sorrow or going into sorrow and then feeling like that, that despair and without hope. We can see in the scriptures and among the, the movements of the spirit the fact that there is this God that is seeking us. That we cannot pull ourselves out of the mire however much we want to try. But that God as a good shepherd continues to come to us over and over again to bind up our wounds, to make things right within our community when they're off, to take care of the weak, to make us into a true community, into a true flock. And he establishes this covenant of peace with us. And so as we turn to the communion table today, we think about that covenant of peace and we think about the blood of Christ, that we all come to this table in faith as vulnerable people that are broken by grace. 
Some of us have done shameful things in our lives. Some of us have done shameless things in our lives. And to ignore those things or to not feel the weight of them is just not legit. It's not true. But we can come to this table because it all levels out. As we come here, we're like, oh, Jim, you're, you're a sinner. Yep. Steph, sinner? Yep. Justin, sinner? Yep. And there's this hope here, not only of forgiveness, but also of transformation as we keep our eyes on Christ. As the exile comes to an end, both in part now, it is finished, and totally in the future, it is done. So sometimes at the end of hide and seek, what is one of the the phrases that is yelled out? I didn't hear anything. Ali, Ali, oxen free. What the heck does that mean? Um, I looked it up because I was just like, where did that come from? Some people think it's a mis, uh, it's either from Old English or mis- mispronounced German. Alle, alle, Ochsenfrei. <laughs> Which means, all, all are now also free. So Christ's table and all that it means point to a change in the game. That we don't have to continue in these games that we play with one another and with God of shame and uh, worldly sorrow because God has provided a better place and a better table because it is finished. And so today, we're not going to have anybody quote-unquote serve communion. That is our normal rhythm. Um, I felt like this morning um, that needed to change just for this morning. It's really important that somebody actually give you um, that there, there's a human presence there when um, we do communion. But this morning I felt led that Jesus, when he broke the bread and he gave it and he you know, poured the wine and he gave it the juice, he also said to you, take and eat. And I just want you to know that your good shepherd is your good shepherd. And then we as a flock, as we grow in maturity, do count on one another, and we do love one another, but ultimately it always comes back to the one mediator that is Jesus Christ. And so as you go to the table today, rip, dip, and take. If you need help getting the communion elements, say so. Ask somebody to serve it to you. Because this isn't, again, just about me and Jesus. It's about us and Christ. And so at faith, we come to this table And what we hear at this table in the game of hide-and-seek is come out, come out wherever you are. The game has changed. The covenant has changed. And now we come into this place of brokenness and of peace and of faith, knowing that even in the midst of our shame and sorrow, that God is seeking us. Let the idols topple. Let us be exposed and let us be naked because our God is for us. Let us grieve deeply and then enter into uh, repentance and into joy of salvation. So we're going to sing during these two songs. I bless the brave one that goes first. Serve one another. Be with one another. Turn your eyes to God. Again, the scripture is so rich and deep with... um, 
with language and with truth. I wanted to read from uh, Colossians 3 as a benediction. If then you, Cornerstone, have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then it goes on to say, put away the evil deeds, and rather put on Christ. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Amen.